Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Morning, everybody. Uh, reading from Habakkuk chapter one uh, and start of chapter two. Uh, the oracle uh, that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you are told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose strength is their God. O Lord, you not from everlasting, are you not from everlasting, sorry. My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, You have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. He gathers them up in his dragnet, sorry. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net Destroying nations without mercy, I will stand at my watch and station myself on ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. This is the word of the Lord. Well, well done. (laughs) 
And uh, what a privilege it is for me and for Narelle to be able to be here. We, uh, this is my first time in visiting, and not because I didn't want to, it's just I've got other things on on Sunday morning normally, so a uh, shortage of opportunity. But I realise that this is an important day for this gathering after Kay's farewell, entrusting her to the Lord. Um, I never met Kay, but someone who was part of your church for 50 years, I can only imagine. And uh, we come to find comfort in God's word, as always, don't we? And thank you for allowing me to share it with you today. So we're in Habakkuk. Keep your Bibles open or on your devices. We'll be going right through. I understand this is a series of one-hit wonders, which means you do a whole book in one week, right? So I gave Nick 11 verses in James. He gave me three chapters. All right, thanks very much. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's a, but what a privilege. Anyway, let's, let's, let's pray. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, um, as always, we look to you and we cannot live, we cannot live by bread alone. We need your word. And we know your word creates faith and it creates hope. And Father, by your spirit, please do that in us today. Uh, help us to hear it, to believe it, to deeply understand it, and then to trust in you, the God of all comfort and compassion who answers us in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, why don't you do something? Habakkuk complained to God. Why don't you do something? Now, complaints. Normally complaints in the Bible are, are negative things. We, we think of the Israelites mumbling and complaining in the desert right for 40 years. Not a good thing. Paul in Philippians 2 says, do everything without complaining or arguing. It's not a good thing. Yet Habakkuk complains, not because he was ungodly, but because he was godly. Habakkuk, like the Lord, values justice and righteousness, and he despaired when he saw injustice all around him. And perhaps we can understand his complaint, because when faced with injustice, we all have our limits as to how much we will bear before enough's enough. Most of us, I think, if you could imagine, could pinpoint a moment in your life when you had reached that limit, when enough was enough. You'd been bearing injustice for a length of time, but finally you'd reached that limit and maybe against your character, you spoke out. Maybe there was a very unfair situation at work, which had been going on for quite a time. Maybe a persistent injustice within your family, extended family, perhaps. Habakkuk has reached his limit and he cannot not speak out. He's tipped over that threshing level. And so he complains, not to the governor, not to his local member, because they're part of the problem, right? Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah. Around 610 BC, Israel, the ten tribes to the north, had been wiped out by the Assyrians four generations earlier because of their persistent idolatry and rejection of God. The border of the Assyrian Empire, the superpower, was now only 12 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And for more than 100 years, that superpower had been sitting there like this dark, looming threat on the nation of Judah. Now, you would have thought that in that situation, Judah and her kings would have learnt the lesson that God served on northern Israel, but they didn't. King Manasseh of Judah had plunged Judah into sin more abhorrent than any evil before him. 
And so pervasive now was this evil throughout society that not even the godly reforms of King Josiah could reverse the fate of what was going to come on them. Now a new king, Jehoiakim, was once uh, sending the nation spiralling into this moral abyss. And so Habakkuk, a godly prophet of the Lord in that generation, complains to God about the injustice that he's seeing, not about what other nations were doing against his own people, but the injustice that he saw within his own nation, within the people of God, the people of Judah. He's been praying, but God has not acted, and he can't bear it any longer. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Habakkuk's limit has been reached, well and truly passed, and he can't help but say, why do you make me look at injustice? Lord, why don't you do something, is what he's saying. Why do you tolerate wrong? Don't you care, Lord? Destruction and violence are before me. There's evidence, right? There is strife. Conflict abounds. Therefore, the law, you know, your law that you love, is paralysed. Justice never prevails. And the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Everything is topsy-turvy from how it should be. Now, every day, of course, we are confronted with issues of injustice on our screens and perhaps in our lives. Now, maybe we're outraged or maybe we just suffer injustice fatigue, right? Maybe we don't really care anymore. Well, Habakkuk cared because he knew that God cared. And because he knew that the Lord cared, he expected him to act because how could God not act? Sometimes we see injustice and we think, surely enough is enough, God. Why don't you step in and do something? So I remember hearing from um, Ben Kawashi, who is the Anglican Archbishop of the Nigerian area of Jos, in the centre of Nigeria. Now, if you don't know anything about Nigeria, the southern part is mainly Christian, the northern part is Islamic. Jos is right on that pressure point. And he described how Islamic extremists broke into his own home, beat him, he's an elderly man, blindfolded him, held a gun to his head so as to kill him, and then raped his wife. This is a godly, loving ministry couple. He told me the story. Um, a recent article in the Barnabas Aid magazine described the kidnapping of 76 Christians in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram, the Islamic group, all were tortured. The four male leaders were taken and told, unless you renounce Christ and convert to Islam, you will be shot. Well, they, they were shot. They didn't. And their wives watched as their husbands stood firm and were executed. And then the wives were told, unless you convert, your children will be shot. Two weeks ago, the BBC reported a terribly shameful ordeal inflicted on two Indian women who were paraded naked through the streets in Manipur um, after a deadly attack. They were, they were Christian women. 60,000 Christians had been displaced, churches burnt, 120 killed. But this public parading of these two women, humiliated and naked after being raped and molested, this topped it off, causing even the Indian president, Mahindra Modri, um, to weigh in and condemn it as shameful and unforgivable and a crime against humanity, and he himself is a quite um, ardent Hindu. 
Lord, how can you look at this violence and injustice and not intervene? Well, that's Habakkuk's question. And now comes the Lord's answer. Now, the Lord doesn't always answer our complaints. He didn't with Job. Um, But he did with Habakkuk. And his answer wasn't what Habakkuk expected. The Lord's answer was shocking. Verse 5, he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed because I am going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. You know, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the earth to seize dwellings not their own? Now, this is like saying, guess what? Uh, In punishment of the West, I'm going to raise up a whole nation of Wagner mercenaries who are going to come, or Islamic extremists, or, you know, fill in the blank, as my agent of judgment against the unjust Western nations of the world. Imagine that. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. They sweep past like the wind and they go on. Guilty people whose strength is their own God. Habakkuk complains. The Lord answers, well, I'm going to do something. I do care. But the answer isn't what Habakkuk expected. And it happened. In 598 BC, the Babylonians did sweep across and they did invade Judah from the north. They went across, you know, the Negev Desert. They came down from the north. 23 years years later, they breached the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and they exiled her people. We are told in 2 Kings chapter 24, this happened in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, because he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. So in answer to Habakkuk's complaint to God, the Lord says he's going to send the Babylonians as his agent of justice against his own people. To which Habakkuk then says, say what? Verse 12, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we won't die. We're your children. Surely it's impossible that you'll wipe us out, isn't it? And then the Babylonians, my Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So here's his second complaint. Surely you're too pure to use evil Babylonians as your agent of judgment against us. I mean, we're bad, but the Babylonians, they're worse. They're merciless. They're idolaters. So he complains again. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I'll stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what the Lord will say to me and what answer I am, uh, I, I am to give to this complaint. Now, most of us will scratch our heads and will wonder, What purpose could God possibly have in the upheaval of the nations of what one people will do to another? 
Um, I was trying to think of something terrible done to Australians uh, recently. Uh, I went to New Zealand. So if, think back, if you could, to the 2019 massacre of Muslims in a Christchurch mosque, if you can remember that moment. Now, the presence of those Muslims in Christchurch could be traced to another disaster, the massive exodus of refugees to Europe and Australia and New Zealand, an exodus which came about because of another disaster, which was the rise of um, the Islamic State, which emerged itself from the leadership vacuum created by the Arab Spring uprisings, and that itself was a flow-on from the US invasion of Iraq due to the weapons of mass destruction scare under George Bush. And that itself was a retaliation for the September the 11th attack on the Twin Towers, which itself was a reaction against America's illegal bombing of Tripoli and so on. One disaster leading to another, you see. What is God doing in all of that? What is God doing with rising nationalism across the world at the moment? You know, with Russia and Ukraine, what is God doing there? What is God doing with the rising tensions in the South, South China Sea? Where is all that going to head? Because which of these nations, you see, is really blameless enough to be God's righteous arm of judgment against another nation? That's Habakkuk's question. And so we stand with Habakkuk at the start of chapter 2 and we wait for the Lord's answer. And it comes. In verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, not just to Habakkuk, but to us as well, know this for sure, there will be an end to this. The end will come. It hasn't come yet. The appointed time hasn't been reached. But I have determined that day already. What you need to do is wait. This is the message for Christians in prison in Iran. Wait. It's the message for Christians in Pakistan being held under blasphemy charges. Wait. This is the message for Christians in Somalia and Yemen and Syria. Um, it's the message for all victims of injustice who will never see justice in their lifetimes. God says there will be an end to it. The end will come. Wait. Now, of course, it takes great faith to wait. And that is the lesson that God is telling us, telling us to wait. When threatened, you see, what's our natural response? They begin with F, don't they? Flight or fight, right? Now, if you can't do either of those things because of your circumstances, you'll have another response, and maybe that's another F, to sink into fatalism and despair. But now God gives us an alternate response, another one, which also begins with F. It's not flight, it's not fight, it's not fatalistic resignation. It's there in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, a very famous verse in the Bible. Faith. The righteous will live by faith. Now, think on this. This is a very important verse. It is a description. The righteous man or woman in the Bible has always been that person who lives, and the word is to walk, that you walk through life, you, you live, actively trusting in God. It's an active idea. You, you go through life trusting. In Galatians 3.11, Paul quotes this verse to say, it's faith more than any works of the law which marks out God's children. 
So it's a description. The righteous will live by faith. That's the characteristic. But it's also a promise. The righteous will live by faith. Again, Romans 1.17, Paul quotes this verse in Habakkuk in, in reference to the sure promise of life to all who believe. Even though what we're experiencing now is a measure of God's judgment in all the world's upheavals, the righteous, nevertheless, we will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. True in Habakkuk's lifetime, true in Paul's lifetime, true for us in our lifetime. It is such a contrast to the king of Babylon judged by God in verse 4 as puffed up. His desires are not right, but the righteous will live by faith. Yet the king of Babylon's wine betrays him. He's, he's arrogant. He's never at rest. He's as greedy as the grave. And like death, he's never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations. He takes captives all the people. God does see what's happening. And he may be using world powers as his agent of judgment, but he is also assessing their motivations and their actions. And the next part of his answer to Habakkuk is his announcement ahead of time of the judgment that will come in turn upon the king of Babylon. And the judgment has five woes. Verse 6, the first one. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. The day will come when your debtors, your victims, will arise and make you the victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So woe to you, king of Babylon. Second woe, verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. You have plotted the ruins of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. He says, your house walls will cry out against you. Woe to you, king of Babylon. Third woe, verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Well, what's the Lord's answer to that? He has determined that what, what will last will not be built by bloodshed nor by people's labour. But verse 14, the day will come, he says, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so the lesson God is giving us for us first, is to have an active faith but also an active hope. I want you to think for a moment, how much do the waters cover the sea? Um, completely, right? So the day will come when every part of the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. What is the knowledge of the glory of God? Jesus came revealing God's glory, the knowledge of the glory of God, surely is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom God has determined to be the righteous king over all the universe. The day will come when everyone will know that. When will that come? That moment is described in the book of Revelation when the seventh trumpet is sounded and then there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Because you have taken your great power. You've, you have begun to reign the nations were angry, 
but your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. And your people who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth, for those who live by faith and have hope. You see, the day of judgment will be a day of relief. But for others, the woes continue, verse 4. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, sorry, verse 15, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Human depravity, drunkenness, voyeurism, violence, it will all be overturned. The final woe is against idolatry, verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it. And then comes the climax of the book. The last word from the Lord is his answer. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It reminds me of the silence in heaven for half an hour in Revelation chapter 8. It's the silence of awe. The silence of being in the presence of God who has finally revealed the judgment to come and yet he will bring out of that judgment those who wait in faith and in hope. They are described in Revelation 7 around the throne of God. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. It's true for Kay, right? The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And when the angel opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's the silence of awe, the silence of reverence, the silence of wonder, the silence of worship. Habakkuk began with a complaint. Lord, why don't you do something? The Lord said, I will do something. I'll raise up the Babylonians. Surely you're too pure to look on upon a, use a godly, ungodly nation as an agent of judgment. Well, the end will come. The great overturning of every power, every person who destroys others unjustly. What I call for you is to exercise faith. Now, this is exactly what Habakkuk models for us in his final response Habakkuk had thought that God wasn't doing anything. Now he knows that God will do something. And so in chapter 3, Habakkuk shows us what faith looks like. Verse 
Actually, he has been showing us what faith looks like all along. And praying, leaning into God, complaining, relating to God about what's happening around him, calling on God to act. That's faith. Well, chapter 3 is a prayer, but it's also a song, which means that this prayer was sung by people of faith after Habakkuk. Why? Because obviously they're meant to learn from him what active faith looks like while we wait. So what does active faith look like? Well, first of all, Habakkuk prays. It's a great model prayer, verse 2 of chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. And then he says, I love this, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I wonder, I mean, haven't you read the Bible and thought, God seemed very active back in those days. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if he did it in my day, what he did back then? Habakkuk thought exactly the same. (laughs) And he asked for God to do in his day what the Lord had done in the past. Well, God said he'll overturn the Babylonians sometimes in the future. But when Habakkuk reads a praise, he says, I've read my Bible, I'm awestruck by what you did in the past. Do it again in my time. Do it in our time. What a great prayer. Right? That's faith. That's what faith looks like. Then verse 3 to 15, what he does, and it's worthwhile a study. I won't do it now. But he recounts the pictures of God's awesome past deeds of deliverance. You can do this. If you're thinking God hasn't not doing anything now, read Habakkuk 3. Just take it as a model. Learn and do it. A recount God's past deeds things that he's done. And Habakkuk relays one picture after another which passed through his mind. He's recounting them. As he's doing it, he's revering God. And then comes the magnificent verses, 16 to 19, where Habakkuk models what faith looks like. He says, I heard, my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled, because he's, he's fearing the Babylonians, right? He says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Now that is faith, isn't it? And listen to the difference it makes him in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree does not bud in my time, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop for- fails and the fields produce no food, Though life sucks for me now. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in God my Saviour. Now, why does he say this? He says, verse 19, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. This is the power of hope. Hope springs from faith in God and in what God has promised. Now, is, is it impossible? It sounds almost impossible what Habakkuk is saying. Because when he says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, right? It does sound a bit greeting cardish, doesn't it? Um, you know, a bit pious platitude, you know. But he's not talking about deer in Australia. Actually, it's not the normal Hebrew word for deer. The Hebrew word is ayala. It's a specific animal. It is, in fact, the Nubian ibex, 
There are only 3,000 of them left in the world. There's a picture, right? And they are so nimble that YouTube has footage of them climbing hundreds of feet up dam walls, which are almost vertical. It's astounding what they can do. Have a look when you get home. Nubian ibex. Uh, they do what's almost impossible. Now, that's what faith can do to someone even facing a Babylonian invasion with no food and no prospect of food. Faith can enable someone to rejoice in the Lord. How? Well, it's not because of anything special about Habakkuk himself. He says, and you've got to listen carefully, he says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. It's not me. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He is the one who gives us faith. He is the one who gives us hope. He in whom is awe. How does the Lord enable Habakkuk? Because Habakkuk deeply knows that despite what hap what's happening, God, the Lord, is his saviour. I will be joyful in God, my saviour. That's what he says. Now, that can be the boast of every person here who lives by faith in Jesus Christ. It was the, bo the, faith, or the boast I take it of Kay. Uh, every person who knows that Jesus died on the cross, that he's the judge, but the judge was judged in our place so that on the coming day of judgment, there is no long, it's no longer a day of terror. It is a day of relief. And we can pray that he would be for us in our time, in our day, what we know he will be on the day of judgment. I began with the true story of Archbishop Ben Kwashi, surrounded by gunmen in his own house with a gun at his head. He asked the gunman if he could pray. And so he prayed. And after some time praying to Jesus, his saviour, he heard the voice of his son, who said, Dad, you can open your eyes. He opened his eyes. The gunmen were gone. He lived to tell me the story when he was in Adelaide. I shared the story of the 76 kidnapped uh, Christians in Nigeria. Uh, four were shot. And then if the mothers, sorry, if their wives didn't convert to Islam, their children would be shot. In a verified account of what happened next, whilst the mothers were agonising over this, the children came running into the room telling them that Jesus had just appeared to them and that all would be well. Apparently, he then appeared to the, all 72, and he told them not to fear because he would protect them. He then told them not to renounce him, but be strong because he is the way, the truth, and the life. The next day, the Boko Haram lined up the children against the wall and asked whether the mothers would renounce Christ and convert to Islam. All of them said no. And as the soldiers readied their weapons... They then began to claw at their faces, shouting, snakes, snakes. They all ran from the compound, some of them falling dead. One of the Christian men reached for the gun of a dead militant, but a little girl, four years old, put her hand on his arm and said, you don't need to do that. Can't you see the men, the men in white fighting for us? As for those sisters in Christ treated so shamefully in India... Well, they still await justice. It may come in their lifetime, but maybe they'll have to wait for Christ's return. 
Either way, they are called to have what we are called to have. Faith whilst we wait. Habakkuk said, Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And then he said, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Father, increase our faith and help us in our weakness. Our loving and gracious God, we praise you that you are the Lord of justice. We praise you that there is a judgment day coming when you will right all wrongs, however terrible they have been. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, that when we are confronted by the own injustice that, that we have perpetrated in our lives, we are so grateful for Jesus, our Lord, who in justice went to the cross to pay for our sins. Uh, we thank you that he is our saviour, he is our Lord. He enables us to go onto the heights. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.